People of God in Christ, as Jesus our Lord called his disciples to follow him, he called them to take up their cross and follow him. And what does that mean, to take up your cross and follow Christ? To make it clear, to follow Christ is to believe in him. Even from the beginning, the disciples would not have followed Christ, except that he did for them a miracle to reveal himself to them and move them to follow him. For Peter and Andrew, James and John, if you recall, Jesus did that miracle of a great catch of fish. For Nathaniel, Jesus uh, told him where he was sitting under a, a, a certain tree when Andrew found him and, and brought him to Jesus. Uh, maybe we should be more impressed with Matthew. Uh, Matthew was a, a tax collector, and Jesus simply walked by his, his tax booth one day and, and said, follow me, and Matthew followed him, although it was likely that Matthew already knew who Jesus was and either heard of or had even seen the great miracles of Jesus. So to follow Jesus is to believe in him, and the same is true today. The call to faith in our own day is the same. To follow Christ is to believe in him. To believe in him is to follow him. But Jesus adds those important words, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus was not a dishonest salesperson, Uh, He wasn't a bait-and-switch guy. Uh, He doesn't just call us to follow him, but warns us at the outset what it will cost us. In fact, to take up your cross means to be willing to die for the sake of Christ. And why would we do that? To To ask it in a different way, we might ask, Why did the disciples follow Christ? And why did they continue to follow Christ? And the answer answer is, the answer must be that the decision to follow Christ is made as we recognize that there is far more to gain than to lose in following him. Well, I say all this to introduce the next passage for us in Romans Romans 7, 13 to 25, a passage that calls us into a life of grief. Why would we do this? In the words of Jesus, take up your cross and follow me. In the words of Paul, on behalf of Jesus, what a wretched man I am. To follow Christ, to believe in Christ is to take up a faith that will guarantee us a life of grief. In this case, by, the, by this passage of God's word, a life of grief for our own sin. Again, why do that? And the answer is for the joy set before us. Grief for sin, yes, but joy in the salvation and even more the hope for the end of grief and the fullness of joy in heaven. So here is the first point, exoneration of the law again. 
Once again, the Apostle Paul is clarifying. To put it another way, he is seeking to make clear what he is not saying. Uh, Last time in verse 7, he wrote, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. So the law of God isn't the root cause of sin, although it does do two things in connection with our sin. One, that the law defines what is right and good, and therefore it identifies in us what is wrong and evil. We tend to take that for granted, Uh, at least we used to, living in a culture that uh, generally promoted the good according to God's law, and yet now, not so much. Number two, the law of God instigates sin. At least that's the word we used last time. Uh, As the law commands, so the law stirs our rebellion. But either way, it's not the law of God that is sin. So here now is another clarification in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? So that Paul answers with another and his final by no means. It was said last time that the law kills. In verse 9, Paul even writes, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. But it's not really the law itself that kills. In fact, what we um, find is by the law is that we are already dead, dead even from birth as sinners. That's the point. Not that we were alive and then the law came along and killed us. It could be said that the law comes along and kills us, but only along with this clarification that the law only teaches us, it shows us that we are already dead in sin. Remember, the law doesn't inspire us before it expires us. But it expires us, it kills us, only by showing us that this is what sin really is in us. So Paul writes, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Here we have yet another place where we hear that the law is a teacher of sin. We surveyed all the previous lessons last time, Romans 3.20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 4.15, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Romans 5.13, sin is not counted where there is no law. Then in Romans 7, in verse 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin bringing us then to verse 13, where Paul says, yet once again, that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. But the thing that Paul adds here is the idea of sinful beyond measure. 
In other words, now Paul is not just talking about the, the individual sins, the acts of sin that we commit, defined and identified by the law, but even more, he's talking about the state of sin, the, the condition of sin in which we live, even the nature of sin within us. And that word is important, the nature of sin, because, because we think of sin as just the bad things we do and, and the good things we fail to do. And if we do so, then, then we've made a good start at knowing our sin. And if we, if we think of sin as the condition or the state in which we live, this is good, this is helpful, but it seems to me that when we, when we speak of sin as a condition or, or a state, we, we might still think wrongly of sin as being out there. Perhaps it's the condition or the state only as the environment that, uh, that we live in. But sin becomes sinful beyond measure, to use Paul's own words, when we come to understand that sin is our very nature. It's, it's not just what we do, but it's who we are. Paul explains this further in uh, Ephesians 2, when he writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So here, Paul makes it clear from the start what sin is. It's, it's, it's the state of being dead. And not physical death, at least not yet, but the state of, of, of death, being dead in the midst of life, being dead even as we live. But as we live physically, yet we are dead, dead in the trespasses and sin in which we once walked. We follow not Christ, but the course of this world. We follow not Christ, but the prince of the power of the air. And that's a, that's a strange expression. It's, as far as I know, it's, it's only used here by Paul uh, in, this, in this passage. Uh, the prince of, of, the, of the power of the air. Well, the reference is to Satan, of course, but it, it, it sets up Satan as, as truly the ruler of this world and the owner of our very flesh, so that the very air that we breathe, this is kind of Paul's metaphor here, the very air that we breathe in this life is, is the air that certainly keeps us alive, but that is only the air of death. In a sense, we breathe death each and every day apart from Christ. And so this is the extent of, of our life in this world. We, yes, we walk. Uh, <clears throat> you walked into this room in just a little bit. You're going to walk out of this room tomorrow morning. Uh, you'll begin a, a, light, a week of, of walking through this world. But the extent of our walking is... Number one, we only follow the course of this world. Uh, trends, fads, culture, worldly wisdom. Uh, we go with the flow, as we say. 
uh, whichever way the wind blows, we go that way because it's, it's easier to have the wind at our backs than to have it in our faces. Number two, it's not just the world, but the world under the mastery and the direction of the evil one. And so number three, we live, we are alive in one sense, but we live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So here is the doctrine of, of total depravity, as we say, the, the totalness or the, the totality of, of total depravity doesn't mean that in every moment we are as bad as we might be, but that we are sinners, body and soul. We are sinners in body and in mind and in heart. We live each day in the passions of our flesh and in the desires of our body and mind. And, and perhaps the further totality of total depravity is that we do so like the rest of mankind. There's nobody exempted from this state of death in life. When you receive a, a performance evaluation uh, in your workplace, uh, it's the matter of hearing about things that, that you could do better, right? Uh, the evaluation says that you're, you're doing this well, you're you're doing that right, but over here you, you could improve. And I, and I think we tend to look at God's law that way, that we're doing fine, uh, but we could improve here and there and in the next place. But that's not what the law of God is meant to do. It's ultimately meant to expose us fully in our failure and in our sin. The law of God is meant to bury us in the reality of our sin, but not just to bury us. The law of God isn't sin itself. The law of God isn't death itself, but it does expose us and show us our sin, and it does so. Let us hear this clearly. It does so to lead us to Christ to cast us upon the mercy of God in Christ our Savior. And so this second point, wanting and doing in the Christian life, because it doesn't just all go away, does it? To believe in Christ isn't to enter heaven and, and arrive instantaneously at some perfect state of being. The flesh goes with us as we follow Christ. The sinful nature is still there. It's just that we are now aware of it. At least we are meant to be aware of it. Verse 14 says, For now, or for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. And then comes the wanting and doing of the Christian life, starting in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And in verse 18, for I have the desire, there, there's the wanting of the Christian life. I have the desire to do what is good, 
but not the ability to carry it out. And the point is not that uh, um, uh, the point is not just uh, uh, that we are lost in sin after we come to faith in Christ as before. Obviously, once Paul was converted, he, he didn't continue to hate Christ and to hunt down Christians. But as a believer in Christ, he, he entered into a, a life of grief. And yes, it was a grief for his past sins, how he had uh, persecuted the church. But he entered into a life in which his daily failures were made clear to him and to his great grief. And why grief? Because his passions were changed. He now wanted to do what is good for the sake of Christ, whom he had come to love rather than to hate. There is so much comfort in this passage. I think it's loved by many, many Christians, um, many struggling Christians. Uh, The comfort comes by simply teaching us that what we're experiencing uh, is normal to the Christian life. Uh, So you're struggling with sin. Welcome to the Christian life. Uh, You're having to confess your sins at the end of each day. Uh, You're aware, you're convicted of the sins you commit in the course of a day. Good, because that reveals your faith. And by faith, by your faith, your struggle with sin. The conviction reveals that, that your passions have changed. And, and your confession of faith at the close of each day will serve to draw you nearer to Christ. We draw nearer to Christ as we understand more and more how much we need Him. How glorious it is that we have Him. And how much more glorious will be that day when we are with him in heaven. Secondly, here is a terribly comforting passage by putting us in fellowship with the great Apostle Paul. Thanks be to God for the honesty of the Apostle Paul, a a teacher in the Christian faith who had truly quit being a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee, He once counted himself righteous uh, in himself and called others to be as righteous as he thought himself to be. But he met Jesus. He came under the conviction of the law. And he entered into a life both of faith in Christ and therefore a life of grief for his sin. And so the great Apostle Paul spoke openly of his own struggle with sin so that the people, the people of God might see that they too are meant to struggle. The Christian life is a struggle. If it is real, if faith is genuine, then it will not be the case that we are above sin because the flesh is still very much with us. But as we live the Christian life, as faith is real. So we will have to struggle with sin until we arrive in heaven.
And so this next point, a life of grief. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of of death? We need to recognize the, the grief of the sinner even as the, the sinner is the Apostle Paul. To put it as a great understatement, Paul was grieved by his sin. He was not just saying that he wasn't what he should be. Uh, he wasn't saying that he just wasn't what he wanted to be. And consider that Paul was already clearly preaching the gospel, that righteousness is the gift of God. The law only teaches sin so that we will know our need and receive by faith the righteousness of Christ. So unless Paul was preaching one thing and and believing something different for himself, well, then Paul says wretched, or when he says wretched man that I am, he's not not fearing condemnation and, and hell. And we're going to hear very soon him, he's going to write, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So why is Paul so upset? Come on, Paul, you've got Christ and and his righteousness. Wretched? Yes, he is wretched. He is still struggling with sin, still falling to temptation, still battling the flesh each and every day. And that experience is what makes him wretched so that he grieves and he longs for the day when he will be delivered from the flesh. And such will be the experience of of every Christian because of two factors. Here is one of those equations we might say in Scripture. The the new birth, conversion, coming to faith in Christ as Savior, plus the flesh being still with us, equals a mighty conflict. And it equals a life of grief. We can't get around it. It's the life we are called to. Some would avoid it by saying... uh, as Paul has already ruled out, by saying, well, let us sin that grace may abound. Uh, Some would avoid the grief uh, of the Christian life um, uh, by way of, as Paul has already ruled out, let us sin since we are not under law, but under grace. And others would would make some peace with sin, maybe by just giving in to despair. Well, I, I can't beat it, so I, uh, I'll just join it. But that's not the answer either. The right answer is to say with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And amazingly, it is the gospel itself that brings us to, to such grief. It is the good news of Jesus Christ that brings us to be honest in the grief of our sin. And so last, the hope of heaven. We must understand that Paul does not make his exclamation of grief out of despair. He, He doesn't say, who will deliver me without already having the answer. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. God will deliver me. The day is coming when we will be delivered from our struggle with sin. And it's, it's not that we will be delivered as we escape the body, only to be spirits in heaven. No, we will be delivered when we are raised up from the dead and we are given new bodies. Here's where this message becomes an Easter message. Or we really should say a Lord's Day message. Uh, as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ every first day of the week. But when Paul asks the question, arising out of his grief for sin, who will deliver me? He answers with certainty, not with any kind of vague answer, maybe, could be, might be. No, but boldly and, 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 and with certainty, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God now, later too, but thanks be to God now that the day is coming when we will be delivered from this body of death. Now, because Christ has been raised, which means that we have been raised our faith being the evidence, as we've said, so that our faith is also the assurance that we will be raised in the body, we will be delivered from our struggle with sin in the last day. The easier thing is to anticipate the resurrection uh, for the sake of eternal life, for the sake of heaven, But the teaching of God's word calls us to to grieve our sin and to anticipate and hope for the resurrection. Why? In order to be delivered from this struggle with sin. It's It's a struggle that is so inherent to the Christian life that if it's not there, neither is the Christian life being lived. If our sin doesn't bother us, then we are not believing in Christ. But how much does it bother us? That's the question perhaps to consider. Uh, Is is it just irksome to us? Does it just embarrass us so that we hide it from others? Uh, Do we turn from sin only to avoid the harm our sin does to ourselves and to others? Or do we truly grieve our sin? Will we say, along with Paul, how is it that the good I want to do by my faith in Christ, it's not the good that I actually do, but I keep doing this thing called sin? Will we say, along with Paul, what what wretchedness is this? What a life to be done with already. I can only struggle on in my Christian life, but I can be waiting and I can be expecting, I can be longing for the deliverance that will be mine in the last day when I am raised up new and when I am raised up to honor and serve Christ, even as I now want to do, but as I now do imperfectly. When I am raised up to live for Christ 
beyond what I am now capable of doing. And again, why take up such faith? To some degree, why choose grief when we could party our way through life? Because we love Christ. And why do we love Him? Because He loved us. And He has already saved us by His life and through His death and in His resurrection. That we might be delivered from sin. What a glorious day that will be. Amen. Let's pray. promises of your word, O God, in the gospel are so rich and deep, and this is but one of them, that though we struggle now, yet the day will come, and may it come soon, the day will come when we are delivered from this body of death. Thank you. Thank you for this hope and this promise and the joy that awaits us when, because of Christ, uh, we get to be in heaven forever without sin. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.